Welcome to the Poem the Parsha, the podcast, Adrian. Ribby. Good morning. Hi, and here we are. It's another Parsha. It is. It's another Parsha. It's another poem. It's another lens on on our text and 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 I think on our ourselves. And I think it's great that you said that because I do want to say with some tones of um some do some briety or soberness today is Yom HaZikaron that we are recording on Yom HaZikaron. Tonight will be Yom HaAzma'ut. So it's Israel Memorial Day, Israel Independence Day coming. And I think that our tradition always reflects all of those uh, things for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. We cannot help but be steered by the circumstances in which we live. I think that is a quotable quote. Oh, um, gosh. Put yeah, it on my and, tombstone. And, um, and this week's is a double Torah portion, a double Parshat Shavua, Acharemot and Kedoshim. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of kind of jokes about that. I'm not sure if you know those jokes. Um, how about you tell us one just for just for the sake of itself? Acharemot, after someone dies, Kedoshim, they're holy. Meaning, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, while they're alive, we get to be, you know, kind of screaming and yelling and always in a something with them. But after they die, you know, they're they're great. But that's, yes, that's one of those traditional jokes. But with lots of seriousness, Aharimot is, of course, after the death of the sons of Aharon. And last week's Torah portion was Tazrim Sora, but before that was Shemini, which we talked about the death of the sons of Moshe and Aaron. And it is interesting that we are talking a lot in these days around Holocaust Memorial and Israeli um, Memorial Day of people who are truly Kedoshim, holy ones who gave up their life for Kiddush Hashem and for the sanctifying of God's name in the Shoah and, of course, Medinat Yisrael, and so it is kind of poignant that it's Acharemot Kedoshim, not Absolutely. as but seriously, no. that after these lives have been sacrificed for um, the sake of God, heaven, Judaism, Torah, higher ideals, Israel, that we do honor them, and so that's what we're all going through today, whenever anyone is listening to the podcast, that's what's going on now. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so to frame this week's Parsha, we have curated um, a, a poet and poem that that I think speaks to both um, the spiritual and the, um, I hate to say political, but I do think that there is like a, a political um, lens on this. We chose Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats. Um, Yeats was a Protestant who was born in born and educated in Dublin and later in London. Um, and he was he really occupied this sort of interesting space as a sort of Anglo-Irishman um, who was influenced by the capital R romantics, you know, Keats and Wordsworth and Blake and, and all of the sort of school of romantics that we think of. Um, who I think gave us modern poetry as a gift in some ways. Like they were oh my, very, I'm go so ahead. appreciating everything you said. Of course, I, first of all, I do want to say that this is a Yeats first 
for us. We have yes. never done a poem by Yeats. And am I saying it correctly? Um, his biography is so interesting. And he goes into this whole mysticism thing. He really does. And he's really, I think, you know, writing from a politically, geopolitically complicated place. He's writing from a personally complicated place. Um, but this particular poem is is a way of thinking about sort of the eternity of the human experience and our sort of innate, you know, remember he's influenced by the romantics and he's very interested in this sort of um, yearning, the sort of spiritual longings of the romantics. You know, I wander long, I wander, I wander lonely as a cloud. Um, these sort of like deeply emotional poems and deeply emotional um, experiences that they write about are very present in this particular poem. And they did a lot of experimenting with- In so many ways. In, yeah, and I'm like really so surprised by it all that they were really into mysticism and- Oh, they were. And practical, like communing with the next world and very interestingly and so it's interesting then that this is the poem that he writes so I wanted to simply say something about Parshat Kedoshim Parshat Kedoshim you know lists mitzvah after mitzvah after mitzvah commandment after commandment after commandment and but it is all within the framework of Kedoshim to you be holy and mm -hmm. so what's really interesting is what does it mean to be holy within Judaism uh, in contradistinction to other religions perhaps holy does not necessarily mean you're fasting you're living a life of asceticism you're all by yourself up on a mountain but no actually no it's it's you're in totally with human beings and how you get along with your neighbor and do you have fair weights and measures and are you being kind to the stranger and do you love everyone you know as yourself and specifically this mitzvah mipnei seva takum vahadarta zaken that we must honor those who are older than us, the elderly. This is probably a verse that is in the front hall of every Jewish nursing home. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at that, but the very practical person in me is like, of course it is. Of course it is. Okay, so let's read the poem. This is the poem. Um, and I also want to say before I read that that each of these, there are four stanzas of eight lines written in iambic pentameter um, and they are numbered. I'm not going to read the numbers, but you, I will try to pause for a second between each one so that each stanza stands on its own as it is written. So this is Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats. That is no country for old men the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies, caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap it ha its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium.
O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, pern in gyre, and let and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. This is such a beautiful poem. And I want to deeply appreciate what I learned about William Butler Yeats yesterday when I was looking into this is he worked really hard at his poetry. And he, mm -hmm. was, he was with a whole group of poets and, and artists who worked very hard on their poems and they would write and they would read and they would write and they would read. And this is, I know it's like even arrogant for me, little Rivi, to say this is a magnificent poem, but this is a magnificent poem. This, yes, yes. This is when I say, when someone asks me, because they do this, when someone asks me, what's a poem? This is one of the poems I point to. Oh, who knew? That's, I'm really happy to hear that because you and I have never really discussed this poem before. No. I, I want to just, there's so many interesting things that as we're hearing this poem, you can see how many of the lines have been adopted in popular culture. Mm-hmm. You know, like No Country for Old Men. Wasn't that a movie or a book by McCormick? Um, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so do you want to explain why it's Byzantium or shall I? Um, I'm interested to hear. In what, I mean, I can tell you why I, quote, think it's Byzantium, but I'm interested in what you have found. Because so, I remember that I approached this. I have learned this poem as a poet. I have not necessarily spent the same amount of time with this poem as a student of literature. So go ahead. I'm really well, interested. I, well, I was, you know, Byzantium is, of course, modern day Istanbul. Yes, I believe. Okay. And there's an idea, I believe, that Christianity emerged from there and that these group of people wanted to go back there. And so sailing, that's sailing to Byzantium. So am I wrong? What would you have said? I would have said, yes, I believe that, that um, Byzantium was at the time like a cradle of one of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Right, exactly. Um, and so there was, I mean, I think there always is amid, amidst the religious life, a, a yearning to return to the place of our origins and to the place where we were sort of, as a people experienced a formative time. So I'm not surprised to hear that. I, um, yes. And I do think that there, that this is really about sort of a yearning for eternal life, a yearning for holiness, a yearning for a relationship with the divine. Um, and I think Byzantium happens to be a sort of convenient place to put that. Now, there's so I mentioned um, no country for old men. Mm -hmm. There's also this golden bow. Yes. So that's a course, that's a book by jo, uh, Campbell. Yeah. So it became the name of the book about myths. Yes. Um, 
and um, by I think everyone should own that book. If you are right. a student of literature, if you are a student of poetry, even if you are a student of our holy text, you should own that book because okay. it is formative. Yeah, carry absolutely. on. Absolutely, James George Fraser, The Golden Bough. I know is it Bough or Bough? And and it's that actually comes from the Aeneid. It is one yes. of the stories in the Aeneid. So, you know, we're getting a lot of references to. Um, things that we're, we should know about, the Holy Fire. That said, it is a poem which has a rhythm, it's lilting, and it seems mm -hmm. to be telling the story of aging. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we get it right. The first line, there is, this is, that is no country for old men. So what does that mean? Meaning there's no place for old men in, in this world? Um... I think we, I think, ev I think almost every culture that we are intimate with is youth obsessed. There you go. And by the way, No Country for Old Men is a Joel and Ethan Cohen movie from 2007 yes. based on the book by Cormac McCarthy. Yes, yes, yes. Which is a, um, I've taught McCarthy many times. I really much, very much enjoy teaching McCarthy. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I frankly have picked up his books and I can't even get past a few pages. They're hard to read. They're hard to read. I will. I absolutely acknowledge that. And I have said that every time I've taught it, this will be hard to read. Um, and I think I, I think especially this first stanza is particularly rich. Um, the, the first line is in its entirety. That is no country for old men. The young and then there's a line break in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. Well, let's talk about um, some of the tension here with older people. Let's be frank and open about it. Yeah. I think that as we age, of course, there's a new generation and they're new ideas and people love new. I, yes. People love new. People love sitting around organizational boardroom tables. And the one question they have is, how can we attract the young people? Yep. Right. And by the way, as a baby boomer, there's a lot more of us old people around. Um, but there is a general feeling as the old, they're passing the baton, they're moving on. The hope and the dreams, the future are young people. And mm -hmm. there is a feeling as you're getting old, and I'm getting old more than you are getting old. Um, and there's a feeling that you kind of notice people not caring as much about you as we age. Mm -hmm. And and there's even this idea of, you know, don't cast Al Tashlichenu, what does it say in this psalm? Al Tashlichenu la Don't cast us off in our old age. Mm -hmm. um, and that also, by the way, is a quote that's in a lot of nursing homes. And so our Torah portion this week tells us, you must rise for a person who is old. And you must honor the elderly and a lot of i like to there's something i say in a lot of classes so i'm just going to say it mm -hmm. um, we all think that the, it's a mitzvah oh a mitzvah is something i get to do and i'm like that's not what the word mitzvah means mitzvah no. is something i'm commanded and often very 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 often we're commanded because we it would not come naturally to do it and so we are oh, okay so stop we, there for a minute yeah 
that's what a mitzvah is. You know, if we would have figured it out, I mean, of course, there's the typical don't steal, don't murder. We get it. Of course. But a lot of times a mitzvah is something that if we hadn't been commanded to do it, we would probably be happy not to. And so we are told we must honor the elderly. We must honor those who are older than us because that's not the natural way of the world. The natural way of the world is that we honor the young, the tall, the handsome, the promised, the pretty, and what's old and not looking so beautiful and not with it as much, we tend as a society to cast aside. And, yes. and our Torah is telling us, no, give them honor. The Hadar Tapanezaken, you must Really, the word hadar is an interesting word here. Mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. we know we know priyets hadar because an etrog is called priyets hadar because it's the most beautiful fruit. So the hadar tapenezaken, I'm even going to even kind of tear up. It's like we should think of an older person as the most beautiful. The hadarta, that's what's beautiful. An old, an older person who has acquired wisdom and who has lived through life and has done so much let's give them the honor yes are you there yes i, I did. am i'm okay. thinking very deeply about what you said i'm you thinking know, very deeply about what you said and i'm thinking about it as i read the second stanza of the poem let's hear because there is what here's what i think i read this as with a tone, I read this as sort of flippant. An as aged man is but a paltry yes, thing. Yes, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. Okay, what does that mean, Adrian? So I think we're sort of po- so that we've got the first two couple of lines, an aged like I it's I it, to me it reads as ironic like you yeah. youth obsessed people like you treat these yeah. elderly yeah. people these people with with incredible knowledge in music and literature and art and experience in these things you you people who are building monuments to your own magnificence you yeah. are you are missing. You are missing this, and and I think in sort of a a, a un, unique way, he's sort of saying, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. I am going to the place where I will live forever. Maybe not on this in in this mortal coil, but to a place where I can live forever, where it does not matter, where age is not part of the same the the same. Um, it is not reflected in the same way. I think he's going through a little bit of a conflict and I'm cheating. I'm looking at some interpretation of it. Sure. Um, and I think he's a little conflicted. And so, of course, you know, at first he's very drawn to the young and like, I don't want to be hanging out with the old man in the world. It's nothing but a skinny, ratty old scarecrow. Um, he has to keep his soul alive, but no one can teach the soul to do this if you want to keep your soul alive, you have to do that with your own learning. And so maybe he doesn't want to become old. So he's going to sail to Byzantium. 
possible Byzant- possible but also byzantium is like one of the oldest cities right so i mean i think there is i wonder if that yearning is more about immortality there you go than and about the final, yes and in the final verse does he become a piece uh does he become immortal because he becomes a beautiful piece of golden art or yes yes absolutely which oh. is Weird, yeah. Well, I mean, I also think that this is where the sort of Keats, the Keats um, influences. You know, beauty is truth, and truth beauty. It is all you need to know on. It is all you know on earth, and all you need to know. Okay, I I have something that's really interesting to say. I think so. Okay, so this is really making me think about this. So in this summary that I'm cheating with on the interweb, uh, or he'll be a golden bird placed on a golden tree where he, like the sages, can teach people his eternal otherworldly wisdom, his transcendent understanding the past, the present, the future. So here it is, people. And this really is funny and interesting because Vahadarta Pene Zaken, Zaken means old, but it mm-hmm. also, Adrian, stands for Zekhanachachma, that when we talk about an older person... We're talking about a wise person. Yes. And so, and that's what's interesting is that's the trajectory of this poem that older people, they have all of this wisdom and how are we going to keep it? And it's interesting that we're going to continue to understand their wisdom, just like we continue to look at an old relic, a golden bow, a golden, you know, something. And I just want to say there's a beautiful Talmudic passage that talks about the golden art, right? The the Aron has in it mm-hmm. the tablets of the law, but Adrian also has the broken tablets. And the Gemara says, and let's all try not to start crying at once. The broken tablets are a Tamid Chacham who has lost his memory. And so broken, shattered, but still there. And the Torah is telling us here, we must continue to honor those who live that rich life and have learned and have studied and have acquired wisdom. And you know why? Maybe society will let you dispose of older people, put them away somewhere, but God is watching every single move. Oof. Oh. Wow. Wow. This is heavy. Uh, This is heavy. I'm, I'm sitting with this and I'm sitting with with this in relation to this day. And how many, have you seen pictures on Facebook of older people holding their arm with their number on it? Of course. And all of the older Israeli people who have really given their lives to Medina Israel. And, Mm -hmm. and what's really interesting is also young people, so many young people have given their lives and you know it's just we're 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 in a poignant moment in the calendar and Mm -hmm. and it's hard to not take note of it i i do want to say that i did something for the first time this year before pesach Mm -hmm. i led our local nursing home klein gallon i led their seder and so I rush, rush, rush all the Pesach prep. And then I ran down to Klein Gallon and I did the Seder at five o'clock or five. Yeah, it was five o'clock. And it's something I really feel so committed to. I've been to that Seder before sitting with my father and Mm -hmm. it's very hard. The whole thing is so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, it is the whole Seder in 40 minutes. Um, And so (laughs) you laugh or you cry. And so it was 
It was a beautiful experience. I was so grateful that I had been asked to do it. And my kiddish wasn't the best kiddish, but you know, it's a forgiving audience. But then we, it's so deeply interesting to see what people remember and how the songs are something they remember. And let me tell you, it was a hearty Dayenu that we sang. And and it's so beautiful. And, you know, you can't like stop crying barely, but there's everyone sitting in the Klangalan, the nursing home's dining room, and they each have Seder plates and matzah, and they're sitting there with their grown children and maybe a grandchild or two. And it's just very poignant because they were the ones that made us a Seder. And I'm now crying. Oh, I mean, it's, it's true. I think we, I think in so many ways, the, older people in our lives have essentially sailed us to Byzantium. They have sailed us to a place where we can feel like we are participating in something that will, that came before us and that will continue after us. And we should honor and make splendid their efforts and their experiences and their vast knowledge. I'm going to just sign off with the last two lines to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. That's just it. Amen. Okay. All right. Well, that was a little heavy. I hope everyone has a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for unpacking that poem. So beautifully. 100%. Thank you for unpacking our Torah so beautifully for us, Remy. Of course. All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Adrian, good morning. And good morning. I'm so thrilled that we're going to record our next podcast. I am too. For, uh, As always. Yes. Um, wonderful series, the poem, the bar of the podcast. Welcome. Absolutely. Welcome. And I'm so thrilled to, that we have, that we have a, a very interesting poem curated for this week. Um, but why don't we start? By talking a little bit about, first of all, why you perhaps sound a little funny. Oh, are we going there already? Well, all right, friends. Listen, let's just here's strike first news. is what I say. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Here's the good news. If you're listening to this podcast, you are not going to get my COVID. So there you go. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I'm not sure why I got a second case of COVID, but, you know, we don't mess with the Lord. So it is. No, absolutely not. But you are going to have an easy and complete recovery. Amen. And we are going to podcast as we're going to soldier on and podcast as per usual. We are going to soldier on. And this week's Torah portion is Parshat Emor. And it begins with the laws for the Kohanim. And it goes into a piece about killing an animal and it's young on the same day oh my goodness we hear we have a we have a great chapter 23 which is all about the holidays and then we get into a specific section interestingly about specific two specific vessels in the mishkan the menorah and the shulchan then the partial Then the partial ends with a bit of an unsavory incident which i think we've actually podcasted about another time and that is the one who curses god um, we did that, I believe, a year or two ago. But we're going to zoom right in to this idea of the menorah and the shulchan. And it inspired us to find a poem about bread. Yes. Um, yes. So 
Why don't you, can you highlight for us the Sukim that you curated okay. from the Parsha so that we can connect because the minute we start talking about the poem, listeners, this is a poem that draws you in so fast. And if we don't frame it right, we're not going to end up doing justice to the Parsha piece of the poem, the Parsha, the podcast. And all I can say, if we are nothing, we are not committed to justice. Absolutely. You know, reverse those negative words somehow so that sentence makes sense. Here we go. So we are committed, we are commanded to create 12 loaves of bread, the Kohanim. They put them on this table with 12 shelves, six and six, and it is part of what is offered in the Mishkan because after a week, and it doesn't go stale, after a week it's given to the Kohanim to literally break bread with. And so this is the um, these are the verses all about the Chalot. Now, of course, it's appeared in other places, but we're getting reminded of it in this Parsha. And in my mind, bread is a really big deal. I think in many people's, actually, confession, I just had a piece of whole wheat toast with pizza, with peanut butter on it. We Bread is the staff of life. Let's hear yes. what Margaret Atwood, who is one of the most prolific writers. And yes. And I'm actually holding a book of her poetry in my hands, newly published, uh, but our poem is not in that book. But why don't you go no. ahead and talk about Margaret Atwood, the amazing, and then the poem. Margaret Atwood is, the, so the, cur- the poem we have curated for this week is called All Bread by Margaret Atwood. Um, as we know, Mar- um, Atwood is a Canadian poet. She was born in Ottawa, educated in um, Toronto. Um, she has had a very long and very prolific and very varied literary career. I mean, she has written novels, she has written literary criticism, she has written collections of poetry, and she has really both a breadth and depth. Um, you know, as we all know, her novel, The Handmaid's Tale, was um, adapted for television. <laughs> um, and, and so she's, she is so... She is, she is really, we should be looking to Atwood as a woman who was holding up a literary world on her own. I mean, she has created literary prizes. She has created literary departments. She has done it all. Um, and this week's poem is called All Bread. And so I would love to read it now. Let's do it. All Bread by Margaret Atwood. All bread is made of wood, cow dung, packed brown moss, the bodies of dead animals, the teeth and backbones, what is left after the ravens. The dirt flows through the stems into the grain, into the arms, nine strokes of the axe, skin from a tree, good water, which is the first gift, four hours. Live burial under a moist cloth, a silver dish, the row of white famine bellies swollen and taut in the oven, lungfuls of warm breath stopped in the heat from an old sun. Good bread has the salt taste of your hands after nine strokes of the axe, the salt taste of your mouth, it smells of its own death, of the deaths before and after. Lift the ashes into your mouth, your blood, to know what you devour is to consecrate it, almost. All bread must be broken so it can be shared. Together we eat this earth. Well, that was quite the reading of quite the poem. 
it is, you know, bread is very interesting. And even yes. when you think about, you know, Torah, you know, bread appears. And one of the interesting things that I think is, you know, just something that's important to um, say, and that is when we make a bracha on bread, one who draws out bread from the earth, which is mm-hmm. a very different kind of bracha than blesses the fruit of the, you know, earth, blesses the fruit of the tree, the bread one seems, I mean, God does not make bread grow out of the earth. God grows wheat. But that's the deal with bread. It is always consumed through a partnership between the Lord God, nature, um, meaning God working through the nature to give us the land that allows wheat to grow. But the human beings. Are you still there? Because I got a phone call. Um, I got a little like sound, but I hear you carry on. Okay, great. So we have bread is the product of a partnership between God and Earth and create and and human creator. Exactly, and it's interesting to me, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about some of the nitty gritty details of this bread, of this poem. All bread is made of wood. It's reminding us that produce comes out from that earth we think it's a beautiful apple and it is a beautiful apple we think the flower is great but say more about how margaret atwood is helping us understand how bread actually comes to life i mean bread i i think part of what bread is doing here is reminding us that we don't get without taking that Same all of these, all, all bread is made from wood, cow dung, packed brown moss, the bodies of dead animals, the teeth and backbones, what is left after the raz- raz- ravens. That there is always something that has come before what we eat. I am going to say something that is going to be a little slightly unsavory um, and I'm sure controversial. And by the way, I would love to for people to be in touch with us about different things we say on the podcast. Yes. And I, we are always happy to engage with listeners. Yes. And you can message us on Facebook or if you know our email addresses. So that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. Um, what my thought was about this bread um, that is interesting. There we go. I got back my thoughts. Um, when I was in Poland, Remain calm, Adrian. When I was in mm-hmm. Poland twice for March of the Living, which is a really game, it's just an amazing experience. Adrian, I confess to you, I refused to eat any produce in Poland because I said to myself in a very gruesome way, that earth was in bones and i just yes. and i'm getting gory and as it all goes into the river and they water and i'm like i'm not having produce in poland uh that said she margaret atwood gets pretty scary too uh yes it gets i think she, i think she acknowledges that 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 what we take from the earth is is also like that what we are doing with the earth is also the resting place of like things that have died of things that have been scavenged of things that have been already processed. Like it's, and, and she's it, acknowledging. Yeah. Go it's ahead. amazing though, that something so, so beautiful and wonderful and tasty and delicious, like wheat that goes into bread is coming from that earth. And what, what, I wonder, 
Yeah, what is the lesson of that? Besides nature and science, I get it. But what's the big idea there? I think that acknowledging that we are part of a cycle that is that is both beautiful and not, right? Like the fertilizer on the fields is what gives us our bread. And, the, it's, also, and it's also the great democratizer, meaning all exactly like, humans are eating of the bread of the earth. And her last few lines, all bread must be broken so it can be shared. Yes. Together we eat this earth. Uh, just I mean, the, the acknowledgement that we are part of a cycle that is complicated and ugly and frightening and and in which death is a prominent piece of is really i think hard for us to sit with well it's definitely an uncomfortable poem which is interesting because if you've read margaret atwood there's a lot of things that she writes that are difficult to sit with Um, oh yes and i've read some of her books as i'm sure you have yes they're kind of creepy sometimes. Oh, yeah. She has absolutely dabbled in the dystopian, um, as we have all seen. And, and that, is, that is hard for us to, that is hard for us to, to process. It is, I think we have, and so many of us, I don't just mean like you, Rivi, and me, Adrian. So many of us have, has, have cultivated lives in which we are not confronting on a day-to-day basis in a lived experience some of these very scary things yeah like meat you know it's on that white piece of styrofoam and we eat it and we have no connection to the creature that it was and that was an animal living and breathing so we definitely are very happy to pretend and not really think through i want to go back to the idea of the shulchan though in the mishkan yes everything so the table with the showbread on it the 12 showbreads you know these are all uh symbolic of different aspects of the human world and so the shulchan is on one side the menorah is on the other side if i knew my directions i'd say north south and they speak to each other they're in, they're in conversation with each other because the bread is the nitty gritty physicality of every human being who has to eat. But the mano- and the menorah represents, according to most people, spirituality, knowledge, and and they're in conversation with each other. We have these two drives continuously, and that is to satiate our curiosity and to fill our belly. And yes, the, and the shulchan in the menorah, the table in the menorah. Are in conversations with each other. That said, I also this week in our Pirkei class, I noticed a commentary of the Maharal around the Mishnah that says, if you take on the yoke of Torah, someone else will take on the yoke of basically Parnassah, Derecheres, Parnassah, earning a living, and the um, rule of law. And that the Shulchan represents... Um, Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to open up the Maharal. The Shohan represents, of course, the physicality, and uh, here we go. He must work to occupy himself. However, when he shoulders the yoke of Torah, his income will resuit left. The relationship of Torah, livelihood, and government is symbolically embodied by certain elements of the Holy Temple. Uh, the table, the Shohan, was on the north side of the room. The menorah was on the south side. And the idea is that the monarchy is the table, 
because the monarchy and government supplies the food that we need. But the menorah, according to the Maharal, represents nature in the seven uh, branches correspond to God's creating the world. So what do you think of that in seven days? I think that we are always going to attempt to reconcile what is sacred with what is profane. And in making this thread is, is it's very interesting that the expression Brit Olam in a uh, covenant that is an eternal covenant is what that bread is. And I found that so interesting. Yes. I mean, I like, think our Torah and I think the Maharal are acknowledging that we are always in a quest to reconcile our spiritual yearnings and our physical body. We will always do that. It is it is innate in our wiring. And this idea of the bread, I want to, I think we've said this before, the root for the word bread, lechem, and the root for the word mm-hmm. war is milchama, that people go to war over bread. Bread is, you know, there's so many sayings about bread, but it is such a basic, and everyone who's gluten-free and has celiac, I apologize, uh, but bread is one of the most essential parts of almost every group of human beings. It also is indicative, by the way, I believe, of so-called civilization. Because yes. at that point, if you plant weed and you stay there and you harvest it, you are not a nomad. No, no. You are, you are no longer having to sort of move yourself seasonally. And that, that's huge. That's huge. Um, and I love our Torah. I love that Kodesh ki Kodesh Kodashim Hu. This bread is holy. And yes, you know, the Kohanim are going to eat it at the end of the week. And I love the idea that this is a holy bread. Chok Olam. It is a decree into perpetuity. And I think it's really interesting to see the role of bread in Judaism. You know, you can grab yourself a vegetable, a fruit, whatever, but to eat bread and to break bread, you must give it the respect due a meal. You must wash your hands. You must say the blessings. And after blessing is the longest ever. And so we're getting a a message from Torah that bread is a very important aspect of being human. Bread is one of the holy aspects of being human. And it gives us the opportunity to sort of sit in that space where we are satisfying ourselves both, both physically and spiritually. And the last, let's look at the last stanza. Lift oh, these, yes. Lift I was these, just about to say that. I mean, come on. Where is Simpatico? Lift these ashes into your mouth, your blood. Oh, my goodness. So the next time you, everybody has a piece of toast, please look at the ashes and your blood. To know what you devour is to consecrate it. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? I mean, I think it's just the acknowledgement that we, that this, this, this unpretty cycle of growing things and sustaining ourselves and sustaining our families and communities, like that is a holy, that is part of a holy act. And when we consume bread, we are, we are participating in a, in a holy experience. Let's talk and about then there's the caveat of almost. 
I exactly. It's to consecrate it almost because we are going to eat it. And then yeah. it's going to become part of us. And I'm not going to go there, but then it becomes a waste product. Uh, yes. And so it's, it's definitely a fascinating idea that, the, that there were 12 of these showbreads. I think they represent the 12 tribes. Duh. And it's all about as if an ongoing prayer for the sustenance of the people. Here's the Absolutely. Bread. Here is the bread that you will use to satisfy all the pieces of your human self. All right. The last time you smelled breath, uh, bread, did it smell? It smells of its own small death of the deaths before and after. Did you have that in mind the last time you had a piece of toast? Um, I think about that when I bake challah. When I bake any bread, but specifically the bread I bake every week is challah. Um, and the that smell of... Like the yeast is dying as it's oh my god in the is oven. it and like it is it's like a little piece of death is happening a little a little death has to occur in order for us to eat. I really um, don't understand that, but I'm going to go back to ninth grade biology and figure this out. Um, the yeast is dying. Okay, that's a little. So it's it's yeah. I mean, and I'm also like just. I'm just creepy enough to think that, I guess. Let's look at the first stanza. This dirt flows through the stems, into the grain, into the arm. <clears throat> COVID cough. Nine strokes of the axe, skin from a tree, good water, which is the first gift. Four hours. If you're talking about how many hours it takes to make the bread? <clears throat> sure. How many hours it takes to reap it? How many hours it takes to, to grind it? How many hours it takes to bake it? It could be any of those things. <clears throat> Yep. But the the production is is long and physically demanding. Well, I, we may have to end on that note because we have to recognize that bread is demanding, making a bread is a big deal and there it is sitting on the gold table in the uh, in the um, Mishkan and clearly signaling that we might be spiritual being, beings and intellectual beings, and we might be the greatest people on earth, but we're still going to need to have bread. We are. And, and furthermore, that bread is a piece of what makes us the incredible right. things that we are. Okay, that's a great place for us to leave off, everyone. Um, have a Shabbat Shalom. Take this Shabbat Shalom. Take this poem to the Shabbat table. Talk about I it encourage that. Parsha, I totally do. All right, I'm glad we finally <laughs> did a Margaret. I'm glad we finally did a Margaret Atwood poem. We haven't done listen one the, when the no, and the time was the time was right. The time was ripe. It absolutely was. All right, friends. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom listeners. Adrian, good morning. And good morning. I'm so thrilled that we're going to record our next podcast. I am too. For, uh, as always yes um, a wonderful series the poem the bar of the podcast welcome. absolutely welcome and i'm so thrilled to, that we have that we have a, a very interesting poem curated for this week um but why don't we start by talking a little bit about first of all why you perhaps sound a little funny oh are we going there already well all right friends listen let's just Here's Strike first news. is what I say. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Here's the good news. If you're listening to this podcast, 
you are not going to get my COVID. So there you go. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I'm not sure why I got a second case of COVID, but, you know, we don't mess with the Lord. So it is. No, absolutely not. But you are going to have an easy and complete recovery. Amen. And we are going to podcast as we're going to soldier on and podcast as per usual. We are going to soldier on. And it's this week's Torah portion is Parshat Emor. And it begins with the laws for the Kohanim. And it goes into a piece about killing an animal and it's young on the same day. Oh my goodness. We Oof. hear, we have, a, we have a great chapter 23, which is all about the holidays. And then we get into a specific section, interestingly, about specific, two specific vessels in the Mishkan, the Menorah and the Shulchan. Then the Parshan. Mm. Then the Parsha ends with a bit of an unsavory incident, which I think we've actually podcasted about another time. And that is the one who curses God. Um, we did that, I believe, a year or two ago. But we're going to zoom right in to this idea of the menorah and the Shulchan. And it inspired us to find a poem about bread. Yes. Um, yes. So... Why don't you, can you highlight for us the psukim that you curated okay, from sure. the Parsha so that we can connect because the minute we start talking about the poem, listeners, this is a poem that draws you in so fast. And if we don't frame it right, we're not going to end up doing justice to the Parsha piece of the poem, the Parsha, the podcast. And all I can say, if we are nothing, we are not committed to justice absolutely you know reverse those negative words somehow so that sentence makes sense here we go so we are committed we are commanded to create 12 loaves of bread the koanim they put them on this table with 12 shelves six and six and it is part of what is offered in the Mishkan because after a week and it doesn't go stale after a week it's given to the Kohanim to literally break bread with and so this is the um, these are the verses all about the Chalot now of course it's appeared in other places but we're getting reminded of it in this Parsha and in my mind bread is a really big deal I think in many people's actually confession I just had a piece of whole wheat toast with pizza, with peanut butter on it we bread is the staff of life let's hear yes. what Margaret Atwood who is one of the most prolific writers and yes and I'm actually holding a book of her poetry in my hands newly published uh, but our poem is not in that book. But why don't you go no. ahead and talk about Margaret Atwood, the amazing, and then the poem. Margaret Atwood is, the, so the, cur the poem we have curated for this week is called All Bread by Margaret Atwood. Um, as we know, Mar um, Atwood is a Canadian poet. She was born in Ottawa, educated in um, Toronto. Um, she has had a very long and very prolific and very varied literary career. I mean, she has written novels, she has written literary criticism, she has written collections of poetry. Like she has really both a breadth and depth. Um, you know, as we all know, her novel, The Handmaid's Tale, was um, adapted for television. <laughs> um, and and so she's she is so she is she is really we should be looking to atwood as a woman who was holding up a literary 
world on her own. I mean, she has created literary prizes. She has created literary departments. She has done it all. Um, and this week's poem is called All Bread. And so I would love to read it now. Let's do it. All Bread by Margaret Atwood. All bread is made of wood, cow dung, packed brown moss, the bodies of dead animals, the teeth and backbones, what is left after the ravens. The dirt flows through the stems into the grain, into the arms, nine strokes of the axe, skin from a tree, good water, which is the first gift, four hours. Live burial under a moist cloth, a silver dish, the row of white famine bellies swollen and taut in the oven, lungfuls of warm breath stopped in the heat from an old sun. Good bread has the salt taste of your hands after nine strokes of the axe, the salt taste of your mouth, it smells of its own death, of the deaths before and after. Lift the ashes into your mouth, your blood, to know what you devour is to consecrate it, almost. All bread must be broken so it can be shared. Together we eat this earth. Well, that was quite the reading of quite the poem. Uh, it is, you know, bread is very interesting. And even yes. when you think about, you know, Torah, you know, bread appears. And one of the interesting things that I think is, you know, just something that's important to um, say, and that is when we make a bracha on bread, one who draws out bread from the earth, which is mm -hmm. a very different kind of bracha than blesses the fruit of the, you know, earth, blesses the fruit of the tree, the bread one seems, I mean, God does not make bread grow out of the earth. God grows wheat. But that's the deal with bread. It is always consumed through a partnership between the Lord God, nature, um, meaning God working through the nature to give us the land that allows wheat to grow. But the human beings. Are you still there? Because I got a phone call. Um, I got a little like sound, but I hear you carry on. Okay, great. So we have bread is the product of a partnership between God and Earth and create and and human creator. Exactly, and it's interesting to me, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about some of the nitty gritty details of this bread, of this poem. All bread is made of wood. It's reminding us that produce comes out from that earth we think it's a beautiful apple and it is a beautiful apple we think the flower is great but say more about how margaret atwood is helping us understand how bread actually comes to life i mean bread i i think part of what bread is doing here is reminding us that we don't get without taking that Same all of these, all, all bread is made from wood, cow dung, packed brown moss, the bodies of dead animals, the teeth and backbones, what is left after the raise, raise, ravens. That there is always something that has come before what we eat. I am going to say something that is going to be a little slightly unsavory um, and I'm sure controversial. And by the way, I would love for people to be in touch with us about different things we say on the podcast. Yes. And I, we are always happy to engage with listeners. Yes. And you can 
message us on Facebook or if you know our email addresses. So that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. Um, what my thought was about this bread um, that is interesting. There we go. I got back my thought. Um, when I was in Poland, remain calm, Adrian. When I was in mm-hmm. Poland twice for March of the Living, which is a really game. It's just an amazing experience. Adrian, I confess to you, I refused to eat any produce in Poland because I said to myself in a very gruesome way, that earth was in bones. And I just, yes. and I'm getting gory. And as it all flows into the river and they water, and I'm like, I'm not having produce in Poland. Uh, that said, she, Margaret Atwood gets pretty scary too. Uh, yes, it gets. I think she, I think she acknowledges that 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 what we take from the earth is is also like that what we are doing with the earth is also the resting place of like things that have died, of things that have been scavenged, of things that have been already processed. Like and, it's and she's it, acknowledging. Yeah, it's it amazing though that something so so beautiful and wonderful and tasty and delicious like wheat that goes into bread is coming from that earth and what what is yeah what is the lesson of that besides nature and science i get it but what's the big idea there i think that acknowledging that we are part of a cycle that is that is both beautiful and not right like the fertilizer on the fields is what gives us our bread and the, it's also, and it's also the great democratizer, meaning all exactly of like, humans are eating of the bread of the earth. And her last few lines, all bread must be broken so it can be shared. Yes. Together we eat this earth. Uh, just I mean, the, the acknowledgement that we are part of a cycle that is complicated and ugly and frightening and, and in which death is a prominent piece of is really I think hard for us to sit with well it's definitely an uncomfortable poem which is interesting because if you've read Margaret Atwood there's a lot of things that she writes that are difficult to sit with Um, oh yes and I've read some of her books as I'm sure you have and they're kind of creepy sometimes oh yeah she has absolutely dabbled in the dystopian um as we have all seen and and that is that is hard for us to that is hard for us to to process it is i think we have and so many of us i don't just mean like you rivi and me adrian so many of us have has have cultivated lives in which we are not confronting on a day-to-day basis in a lived experience some of these very scary things yeah like meat you know it's on that white piece of styrofoam and we eat it and we have no connection to the creature that it was and that was an animal living and breathing so we definitely are very happy to pretend and not really think through i want to go back to the idea of the shulchan though in the mishkan yes everything So the table with the showbread on it, the 12 showbreads, you know, these are all uh, symbolic of different aspects of the human world. And so the shohan is on one side, the menorah is on the other side. If I knew my directions, I'd say north-south. And they speak to each other. 
they're in, they're in conversation with each other because the bread is the nitty gritty physicality of every human being who has to eat. But the mano- and the menorah represents, according to most people, spirituality, knowledge, and and they're in conversation with each other. We have these two drives continuously, and that is to satiate our curiosity and to fill our belly. And yes. And the shulchan in the menorah, the table in the menorah, are in conversations with each other. That said, I also, this week in our Pirkei class, I noticed a commentary of the Maharal around the Mishnah that says, if you take on the yoke of Torah, someone else will take on the yoke of basically parnasah, derecheretz, parnasah, earning a living, and the um, rule of law. And that the shulchan represents... um, Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to open up the Maharal. The Shohan represents, of course, the physicality, and uh, here we go. He must work to occupy himself. However, when he shoulders the yoke of Torah, his income will resuit left. The relationship of Torah, livelihood, and government is symbolically embodied by certain elements of the Holy Temple. Uh, the table, the Shohan, was on the north side of the room. The menorah was on the south side. And the idea is that the monarchy is the table, because the monarchy and government supplies the food that we need. But the Benorah, according to the Maharal, represents nature. And the seven uh, branches correspond to God's creating the world. So what do you think of that in seven days? I think that we are always going to attempt to reconcile what is sacred with what is profane. And and making this bread is is it's very interesting that the expression Brit Olam in a uh, covenant that is an eternal covenant is what that bread is, and I found that so interesting. Yes, I mean I think our Torah and I think the Maharal are acknowledging that we are always in a quest to reconcile our spiritual yearnings and our physical body. We will always do that. It is. It is innate in our wiring. And this idea of the bread, I want to, I think we've said this before, the root for the word bread, lechem, and the root for the word Mm -hmm. war is milchama, that people go to war over bread. Bread is, you know, there's so many sayings about bread, but it is such a basic, and everyone who's gluten-free and has celiac, I apologize, uh, but bread is one of the most essential parts of almost every group of human beings. It also is indicative, by the way, I believe, of so-called civilization, because yes. at that point, if you plant weed and you stay there and you harvest it, you are not a nomad. No, no, you are, you are no longer having to sort of move yourself seasonally and that that's huge that's huge and, um and i love our torah i love that kodesh ki kodesh kodashim hu this bread is holy and yes you know the kohanim are going to eat it at the end of the week and I love the idea that this is a holy bread, chok olam. It is a decree into perpetuity. And I think it's really interesting to see the role of bread in Judaism. You know, you can grab yourself a vegetable, a fruit, whatever, but 
to eat bread and to break bread, you must give it the respect due a meal. You must wash your hands. You must say the blessings. And after blessing is the longest ever. And so we're getting a, a message from Torah that bread is a very important aspect of being human. Bread is one of the holy aspects of being human. And it gives us the opportunity to sort of sit in that space we were, where we are satisfying ourselves both, both physically and spiritually. And the last, let's look at the last stanza. Lift oh, these, yes. Lift I was these, just about to say that. I mean, come on, where does Simpati go? Lift these ashes into your mouth, your blood. Oh my goodness. So the next time you, everybody has a piece of toast, please look at the ashes and your blood to know what you devour is to consecrate it. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? I mean, I think it's just the acknowledgement that we, that this, this, this unpretty cycle of growing things and sustaining ourselves and sustaining our families and communities, like that is a holy, that is part of a holy act. And when we consume bread, we are, we are participating in a, in a holy experience. Let's talk and then about the caveat of almost. I exactly. It's to consecrate it almost because we are going to eat it, and then yeah. it's going to become part of us. And I'm not going to go there, but then it becomes a waste product. Uh, yes. And so it's it's definitely a fascinating idea that the, that there were twelve of these showbreads. I think they represent the twelve tribes, duh. and it's all about as if an ongoing prayer for the sustenance of the people. Here's the Absolutely. bread. Absolutely. Here is the bread that you will use to satisfy all the pieces of your human self. All right. The last time you smelled breath, uh, bread, did it smell? It smells of its own small death of the deaths before and after. Did you have that in mind the last time you had a piece of toast? Um, I think about that when I bake challah. When I bake any bread, but specific the bread I break every week is challah, um, and the that smell of like the yeast is dying as it's oh my god, is it? And like it is, it's like a little piece of death is happening. A little, a little death has to occur in order for us to eat. I really um, don't understand that, but I'm going to go back to ninth grade biology and figure this out. Um, the yeast is dying. Okay, that's a little. So, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, and I'm also like, just, I'm just creepy enough to think that, I guess. Let's look at the um, first stanza. This dirt flows through the stems, into the grain, into the arm, <coughs> COVID cough, nine strokes of the axe, skin from a tree, good water, which is the first gift, four hours. If you're talking about how many hours it takes to make the bread? <coughs> sure. How many hours it takes to reap it? How many hours it takes to to grind it? How many hours it takes to bake it? It could be any of those things. Yep. But the the production is is long and physically demanding. Well, I, we may have to end on that note because we have to recognize that bread is demanding. Making a bread is a big deal. And there it is sitting on the gold table in the, uh, in the uh, Mishkan and clearly signaling that 
we might be spiritual being, beings and intellectual beings, and we might be the greatest people on earth, but we're still going to need to have bread. We are. And, and furthermore, that bread is a piece of what makes us the incredible right. things that we are. Okay, that's a great place for us to leave off, everyone. Um, have a Shabbat Shalom. Take this, Shabbat shalom. Take this poem to the Shabbat table. Talk about I it. I encourage talk that. Parsha, I totally do. All right. I'm glad we finally <laughs> did a Margaret. I'm glad we finally did a Margaret Atwood poem. We haven't done Listen, one the, when the No, and the time was the time was right. The time was ripe. It absolutely was. All right, friends. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, listeners.